The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Cham and welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Each week we're going to take you behind the curtain into the world of football business and other sports across the globe. Alongside me today from The Athletic is football news reporter Matt Slater. Barcelona facing bankruptcy. European football stands to lose €8.5 billion due to Covid. Losses triple at Brighton. There are just few of the headlines that we've seen this week as the financial effects of the pandemic really start to hit home in football. How could a club like Barcelona be in financial crisis while still topping the latest Deloitte Money League? Will football ride out this latest crisis or will the bubble finally burst? Welcome to the business of sport from The Athletic. Right now then, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £3.99 a month. That way you'll get the great analysis, the in-depth features from the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So just head to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. This is your favourite time of year, isn't it, Matt? Money league reports, clubs annual accounts coming out left, right and centre. You're like a pig in the proverbial. I know, it's, it's very tricky because it comes after Christmas where I get like a load of the lazy Christmas present. I get a load of books that just pile up on my um, on my bedside table. And then I'm like, oh, actually, sorry, I've got to read the Deloitte money list anyway and, and, and club <laughs> accounts. So, yeah, this is my favourite season of the year, account season. And I know there's that old joke about in football, you shouldn't have a open top parade for a, for a good set of accounts. But I disagree. I, I would I would definitely have an open top parade for for all those years when Arsenal weren't weren't winning anything but had really good accounts. Definitely get a pat on the back from me. Um, let's uh, but so you could probably guess uh, the the opposite ends of the scale that we're coming from on this. Uh, Deloitte released their twenty fourth edition of their annual football money league this week, estimating that the twenty highest revenue generating clubs in world football will have lost out on. Two billion pounds by the end of this season. Barcelona top the league. Manchester United have slipped out of the top three. Tottenham are into the top ten. They're kind of the headlines. Uh, we're going to speak to one of the men responsible for putting uh, this list together. Uh, Deloitte's Tim Bridge joins us just before we delve into this edition. Just to explain the thinking behind it, why you do it. And in essence, what it all means, because this audience will be a bit like me and Matt at various uh, points along the scale when it comes to club accounts. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, Mark. And firstly, thanks for thanks for inviting me on to try and talk about the boring accounts. Uh, I guess by January, we're all a bit sick of it because the process for us starts in about September or October. And it's through the relationships that we have with our clients and through the clubs that we're lucky enough that they provide us with the information ahead of time. So that the one of the reasons that we do it is almost to be the first to go out with the information. That's that's part that's part of the rationale. But secondly, we kind of want to bring the financial elements of football to an audience in a simple and understandable manner. And of course, a league table seems to get everybody excited. So by ranking them, you you, you attract a, a different type of attention. I think in previous editions, we've always focused on the rankings and who comes top and who comes second. I think this year, more than ever, it's about the overall picture. And so we feel as though this is the first chance we've ever had and it's the first people to go out into the market to say, this is the impact of COVID. And we can say it with a little bit more uh, security, knowing what we know now. Of course, there's still a lot of uncertainty. But every year, it just amazes me. You know, it trends on Twitter. 
the, the, the chat about the money league. People want to understand more about their club. They want to know how the how the finances work and what it means for fans. So it's it's something that we started all that time ago, but it kind of has a place now almost in the annual calendar where even even fans who understand nothing about the finances of football are, are interested and want to understand more, which is great. I, I suppose there are so many different ways we, we could go with this. Just on, on the overall report, first of all, though, is, I mean, society, our world is COVID-dominated, obviously. Is, is this whole report COVID-dominated or are there other trends that you have spotted within the last 12 months that might not necessarily have anything to do with the pandemic? If society is dominated by, by the pandemic, then it's the same. It's the same for the football industry at the moment. I think one of the key factors here is that back in 2008, when the financial crash happened and the recession that followed, football certainly at a revenue level was immune to that. Almost, it was it was recession proof. It seemed, and um, it certainly isn't pandemic proof. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the overarching point. I think what we what we see in the report is we see the different ways in which different clubs have been impacted. Of course, unpitched performance has allowed the likes of Liverpool to almost negate some of the issues that the pandemic has, has caused. And I think what we've seen is those clubs who over time have been able to diversify the way in which they work. Liverpool are, are a prime example, really, with their more digital approach and Manchester City being part of the, an overall group that provides them with with different revenue streams. There are clubs across the money league who've all been impacted in in very different ways, not just from the loss of fans being able to go to the stadium, which clearly is the is the most marked. One fi- one final question on the bigger picture. You, I mean, you're experienced in this right now, but does even you, when you eventually get the figures and sit down and look at the final report? Does your jaw drop at some of the things you discover uh, and the information that is provided to you? So, for example, Barcelona topped the money league with a revenue of £627 million, but they're nearly in a billion euros worth of debt. Do you sit there and go, how on earth does that happen? When you work in the football industry, you do become immune to almost the numbers. You forget sometimes about how many zeros and and what that actually means in, in reality. I think what this report shows us this time more than ever is that the external factors cannot be controlled. So previously, if a club was in a situation where it decided to pay player X €500,000 a week, but it had a benefactor who was willing to cover that, that was okay. 10, 15 years ago, no problems. The world has changed since then and football now can't control the external factors. And so from a financial perspective, and I think where people get confused with football, I think they get they think it's a difficult business. It really isn't. It's very, very simple. And it's all about cash. And it's all about having the cash at the right time that you receive and then you can pay out in, in due course. And careful planning is what is what is required to control and run a football club. Unfortunately, people get excited. I think they can buy the next big player. They want to win trophies. There's the pressure from the fans and from the board and all those sorts of uh, external factors that mean that sometimes the financial judgment goes out of the window. And so, yes, your your jaw hits the hits the floor at, at those factors without a doubt. Well, Tim, I mean, Mark has mentioned Barcelona. I, I suppose we should start there because they are top of your list for the second year in a row. And 
And and when they hit top last year, it was very much a sort of, you know, there there you go. This this on-field success, this remarkable sort of 10, 15-year run they've been on, largely around Messi, is now really starting to translate commercially. You know, they've done clever things off the field as well. And yep. yet the world is turned upside down, right? And we now have, on the same day that you, you had them sort of kind of limping to number one this time, we're finding out the actual full picture at Barca is, is, is pretty bad. And I think my question to you really is, I mean, I, I, I like your report. I read it every year and I know it carries real weight. But you're only ever telling half the story, aren't you? And this has been a criticism of not so much Deloitte's approach, but I think kind of the sometimes the slightly false picture that the money list can give. You know, you're, if you like, ranking all the good bits, all the money coming in, but you're ignoring all the money going that way. And this year, the story has been the money going that way. Yeah, I, I, I stand up for ourselves a little bit, Matt. We obviously <laughs> do two publications each year, one at a point, point where we know the revenue and then one later in the year where where kind of we publish the, the, the bigger picture, which obviously includes what is going out. But you, you, you're totally right. What we're trying to achieve is we're trying to achieve comparability across Europe and demonstrate what football clubs are generating at a point in time, how they then go on and spend that money and run their business model you hope is in line with good good business practices and you hope is something that means that sustainability is something that runs through football. We've seen, of course, UEFA and other governing bodies try to ensure that that happens by putting certain markers in place, by trying to quasi-regulate the industry to all extents and purposes. But you will never get past the idea that in order to be successful on the pitch, there is clear correlation between the amount that you pay to your players and recurring success. That is, that's a fact of the last 25, 30 years and probably beyond. And so on that basis, clubs continue probably to push towards the line as much as they possibly can. And you have an external factor like the pandemic and yeah. it throws it all into into even further chaos. I'm just going to ask you one, one more question then sort of, you know, challenging uh, Deloitte's money list. Okay, I mean, look, every most year is great because you are getting, I think, an early look. You're closer to the clubs than we are. I have to wait for the accounts of the hit companies' house and their equivalents around the world. You, you have a dialogue with the clubs that I don't have, um, and I think that is really valuable and always comes across in your report. And just so for any confusion, you are really measuring the three main income streams, aren't you? It's commercial, match day, and broadcast. Correct. And that that's great. You can you can get a really good sense of a club's size and the key for me is direction of travel so we can often see things that we can see on the pitch being reflected in your list however i do think that this year's list and you've already said it is yep. weird it's it's a confusing picture isn't it and, and that's why i want you to sort of kind of explain a little bit about hard how hard it's been for you to do your list here this year now the, the obvious example for me and we had it a little bit with things like the Southampton report, uh, the accounts that came out last week, the Brighton accounts that came out overnight. Because last season didn't finish on time, there's a section of last season's money that isn't in last season's accounts. It's going to be, it's going to count in the current season's accounts. And the Premier League is the classic example. Now the Bundesliga, on the on the other hand, got their season pretty much finished in time didn't they? Which is why sort of like Bayern have, have, have done well. And then even within leagues, and this is, again, I think just 
is testament to really how much money is being made on a single match day. You can get a situation like at Liverpool that managed to get their last 16 Champions League game off in front of a crowd versus yeah. Man City who didn't. So just just talk me through why we should be wary of reading too much into your numbers this year. No, and, and we, we haven't made any secret of that, of that fact, Mark. We, you know, we usually herald who finishes first and we usually herald who finishes fifth, sixth and moves up the money league. We, we, we purposefully have not done that this year. Um, and that's a very conscious, um, that's been a very conscious discussion point with many of the club. We've worked with them to understand the numbers, to work out exactly how they were impacted. And then to point out how it would have been different in a normal year. You know, your case in point there with the Liverpool and the Manchester City situation is absolutely spot on. I, just a total nuance of timing. And you've also got the difference between Sky and BT here in, in, in the UK clawing back an element of their broadcast money because it wasn't the product that they paid for. Whereas in Germany, it was far less impacted by the opinion of the broadcasters. So, yes, you're right. Whereas we would normally be saying the top 20 clubs are moving forward, we expect this club to move from position X to position Y. It's far less about this about that this time. The, the, our aim has been to demonstrate how individual clubs have been impacted by the, by the pandemic and what that therefore means for the industry. I think if you look at these clubs are always going to be the most impacted in absolute terms. We estimate it's over two billion that they will have missed out on or, or, or lost. In reality, it could be it could be significantly more. And if you go down the football system in relative terms, it purely exacerbates because your likes of Manchester United, your likes of Liverpool, they have relatively diverse business models. They engage with their fans in different ways that your Cheltenham Towns, your Rochdales, they're just unable to do. And so those clubs further down the system are truly losing the revenue and there's no not necessarily any security that that is going to it is going to return overnight none of us know what the future the future looks like so i guess you know the headline of this year's report testing times it's pointed it's meant to demonstrate to the industry it's meant to be a you know deloitte's view we think long term things will work out Football will remain at the heart of people's lives. It will be the product that we love and, and want to enjoy. But there are there are real challenges that these clubs are facing, and that is only demonstrating what's going on wider, more widely. Although, if if Rochdale keep being involved in in games with seven goals per game as they have been for about the last two and a half months, their fan base, I think, will will, will grow greatly. Yeah. Um, let me ask you. Let me ask you about two English clubs on this list. Then, and you talked about Manchester United, so let's deal with them. And you talk about you know how they diversify and they have different revenue streams and how they work with their fans across different platforms. And there was a gist of an Ed Woodward statement to to uh in their their quarterly meeting with shareholders where a, few, a couple of years ago he talked about you know their finances aren't completely based on what goes success on the pitch your report at the moment suggests well actually they are going to be affected by what goes on the pitch because they've slipped down to fourth place and as your report says largely due to them not competing in the Champions League in 1920. Yeah, I, I think uh, it sparked, I remember 12 months ago, I think it sparked quite an outrage in response to one of your articles when I was quoted on kind of 
Manchester United's position and the challenge they really faced, which is, you know, they've been at, they've been at the top. They've been the, the absolute benchmark for every club in Europe for, for so, so long. Don't read too much into them being in fourth position this year, as we talked about the positions. That's quite, you know, doesn't necessarily tell the whole picture. But in, in absolute revenue terms, they're going to be the hardest hit. The pandemic is hitting them harder than anybody else. The product, Old Trafford, match day, you know, we, those of us fortunate to have been there know the volume of people who go through the store on that match day, the number of hours that people spend in and around that stadium, you know, engaging with the club is highly significant. And so to switch that off suddenly is going to have a, is going to have a real impact. When you twin that with them not competing in the Champions League, which, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, that will always be the aim for Manchester United to compete at the top of European comp- competition. And that delivers the highest revenue return. For them, they are probably fortunate that their fan base will want to engage again in their masses quickly once this pandemic is over. And you can, and therefore their recovery in theory should be, should be touch wood, better than than many others, and or certainly better position to recover. And then the other English club I just want to mention is Everton, mm. who are one of only two clubs in the in the top twenty to see an increase in revenue. And your report says that marginal growth was driven by the club's commercial revenue more than doubling. How have Everton managed to double their commercial revenue in the in the year that we have all had? Well, Everton's quite an interesting case to be really as to have a, an investment into a football club in the times of FFP almost and, and kind of what's required in order to try and break into that top four, top six on a on a frequent basis. Since Mr. Mashiri has come in and, and invested his money into the club. We've obviously seen an upturn in their in their performances on pitch, um, and they've got plans for what I don't know. If people, you know, your, your listeners have, have seen it, but it is. I would urge anybody to look at the plans that they have for their stadium. It it it's really is game changing for both them and, and the city of Liverpool, and so they have a they have a great opportunity really to kind of move forward. And they've they've actually cashed in now on that stadium development by forward selling essentially the the. Um, an option to be the stadium naming rights partner. Um, and that's what's delivered the commercial return. I think with Everton, the challenge is the word recurring. So to ensure that that becomes absolutely fundamental for their business model. And again, it's the virtuous cycle of football. Players like James Rodriguez competing well on the pitch. It grows the interest in the club, which in turn should develop more and more commercial opportunities for them. Um, the like of which, because because ultimately you can't you can't sell the naming rights to your stadium every year, and certainly when the when the stadium hasn't yet been built. So uh, that's their that's their challenge. Tim, I want to throw a couple more names at you. Num- number a couple more clubs anyway that, that we follow at the Athletic, um, and I think they both have interesting stories to tell. And the fact that they're in your league and where they're at is 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 telling. I mean, one is one is Spurs transformational stadiums. Well, they've got one, right? Yeah. They, they they probably have the best football stadium in the world. You know, they got that across the line and they've got it built, um, and they were starting to enjoy it, weren't they? And you can see that already in the numbers that you've looked at. Now, of course, yeah. it's sitting empty at the moment, but but looking forward, it's a good story at, at Spurs, isn't it? Because of that stadium. And then the other one I wanted to flag up is Sheffield United. 
creeping in. I know they didn't quite make the 20, but I think they're about 25, 26, which again, I think is just testament to the power of the Premier League. You do well in the Premier League, you get a good merit payment. You're going to be you're going to be in the mix, aren't you? Yeah, it's it's incredible. Deal, deal with that one that one first, Matt. Kind of on the broader Premier League point, which is so interesting because I think four or five years ago, people said, "Oh, the Premier League, the Money League will just be full of Premier League clubs and nobody else." And it and it and it, it hasn't panned out that way. But for the likes of Sheffield United, you know, it's given them the opportunity to. Um, to generate revenue that they, they they could never probably have imagined, and they certainly weren't generating when um, when Prince Abdullah you know took over the club a few a few years ago. They're a really interesting case study actually, um, because obviously they're part of a wider group now as well. So in the same model as Manchester City and as Leicester City, you know they've got they've got other clubs that that uh, the Prince has a uh, has a share in, and um, the future for them really will revolve I think around that player trading model as well uh, and the ability to use kind of the development pathways in order to bring players through at a greater rate or bring players through that might have a value so okay this season potentially not going how anybody would like at Sheffield United um, but the the overall transformation of the club the direction of travel is is, is definitely forward-looking and then I, I, I think the Spurs story is probably what would have been the most intriguing if we had a normal season, frankly. That the stadium is, I mean, it's breathtaking. For those who've been there, it, it's it's absolutely, you know, the highest, highest quality. And, and you're seeing that come through the numbers. You're seeing the, the level of revenue that they've been able to generate from a three quarters of a season um, is absolutely staggering and completely transformational from when they were at, uh, at at White Hart Lane. And so what you'd have to imagine is that in an ordinary in an ordinary season, then the funds available to Tottenham would have been more significant than than many of their, their peers because their business model has just gone from a low point to a, to a much, much higher point very, very quickly. I think the criticism when Arsenal built their new stadium, I remember kind of fans forums were, were kind of alight with this criticism that we've built a new stadium and it hasn't given us the return to invest on the pitch. When you look at the numbers that Tottenham are returning almost immediately, then it feels as though that is a truly transformational project as opposed to something that that may limit the, the club in the future. Um, just a final one. The uh, Juventus chairman, Andrea Agnelli, has seen the list. He, he says uh, that the losses that clubs will face could be around £8 billion across Europe and that you have underestimated it around £2 billion. Uh, Who's right? Um, I, what I would say is, is it's care- careful how you, how you phrase it, I guess. So it's £2 billion as we stand here today, with the information we've got through to the end of the 2021 season for these 20 clubs. A simple extrapolation shows you that the number that Mr. Agnelli is quoting is probably more reflective of the impact on the entire European football industry. And I think that that is that is probably a fair and and, and reasonable comment that, that he makes. It's definitely, definitely the biggest crisis that the industry's ever uh, has ever faced. I think that there's going to need to be a shift in the way that clubs operate in both the short term and then more but kind of as things go forward, if you if you aren't fortunate enough to have pools of cash kind of as reserves, then um, 
then the way in which these clubs operate is going, is going to have to change to be able to cope with anything like this ever again in the future. Well, look, the, the, the future, I think, is... is, is that, sorry, is that, will, that, will, that then, will that then be a positive thing, eventually, do you think, in, in that clubs will have to change how they operate? And we may not be talking about some of this European elite that are, that are on the list, but lower down. You know, I know when you do, you know, you do your the second report that you were talking about, you know, you properly delve into the EFL and the salary caps and so on and so forth. Um, Is that the positive eventually out of the pandemic that clubs will not be able to gamble with, with their, with their historical past so that they go bust and leave a community bereft of a football club? It has to be more. You know, when we see a club in financial difficulties, there's, there's always a, a long list of reasons why they've, they've hit that problem. But often very close to the top is the element of a gamble and taking a gamble to try and gain promotion to the next level up or to have some, some success in a cup competition or, or whatever that gamble looks like is often at the heart of it. And I think across society, I think people have probably reflected in the last 12 months and thought, I'm not sure a gambling position is the one to take as as standard. But what the industry needs, and this isn't just the EFL, it isn't just the Premier League, it's across European football generally, is that really tight control through regulation. It needs to not just be an idle threat for clubs. We we need to work and operate in an environment that that encourages sustainability. It actually and, and actively rewards it. That reward might not always be on pitch. It, you know, not everybody can win, but the systems that UEFA implement, that the, the the individual leagues in each country, you know, they 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 should be attractive to investors, but also recognise that the club has a real role in society, in their community, and we cannot we cannot lose that. And that's probably a broader reflection across multiple industries, isn't it? Not just football. From this point onwards. We have to be reflective of something that's more constructive. Uh, just a final one, um, which has nothing to do with uh, your report or this podcast, uh, but it will be useful ammunition for me next time I do a Monday Night Club with Micah. The signed shirt <laughs> over your shoulder, which is signed by Micah, did you originally want that signed by Micah or were you hoping for for someone else like Jolien Lescott, but that's that's just... To who you were left with? Yeah, I really wanted uh, Mario Balotelli. If I'm, if I'm totally, <laughs> uh, if Mike can organise that for me, I'd be, uh, I'd be eternally grateful. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Uh, really appreciate you. Really appreciate you coming on, Tim. Thank you very much for that. It's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Mark. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Uh, so thanks to Tim, we've got a decent idea of the current state of the financial landscape in football. But what about the bigger picture? Uh, the likes of Deloitte, as we've discussed, seem to take a generally positive view of football finances. Uh, but uh, let's get a different perspective. Maybe Roger Bell and John Purcell from Visible are maybe slightly... Uh, more worried, shall we say, about the game's financial potential. Would would that be fair, Roger? I think it is. You know, I mean, I think um, there is one uh, picture that you see through looking uh, through a revenue lens, and that's very encouraging. Uh, but even with the pandemic, it's relatively, you know, uh, encouraging. But uh, unfortunately, there are these dreadful things called costs, and when you put them into the equation, and when you start looking at them through the kind of metrics that we would use for strategy development, then you see a very, very different and quite a worrying picture. And this, John, was a, a worrying picture even before the pandemic. Completely. Yeah. If, we, if we go back to 2009 and then work our way forward up to 2019-20, in other words, the season where we're now getting, starting to see all of the data, there's only been two instances where Premier League clubs as a group have achieved what we call an economic profit, and that's where we take into account all the costs of doing business. And actually, and more recently, from 2016-17, we've seen a decline when the first of those two profits came in of £4.90 per £100 of revenue. And we're currently running now at a negative value of £34.10p. And that's just in four years. So it's been a remarkable downturn. So it's not just COVID. It's actually a combination of a number of factors over a three to four year period. And what are those factors then? Over, but let's, not, let's not even take COVID into account then, as you've said. Over those three or four years, what were the factors? I mean, I think a good example is, is Manchester United. So their turnover, just reading off straight off their accounts, not doing anything fancy here, not doing anything with economic returns or anything like that kind of thing before we get to all that. Turnover in 2013, 316.19 million. That's straight off their accounts. Turnover in 2020, 509 million and 04, 509.04. So that's on the face of it, fantastic. Uh, 145 million, 145.85 increase in revenue. Fantastic. Trouble is, when you look at the costs, this is before we get to charges for capital and all that sort of thing. Costs, 2013, 310.34. Costs in 2020, 522.2. So revenue went up by 145.85. Costs have gone up by 212 million quid. So what that tells me over time is that the power, what I think that tells us, and you can get a similar picture if you look at the Premier League in total, is that what that tells me, I think, is where the, the power base in the industry is, and the power base in the industry is with the players and the agents. <laughs> what a surprise. And in the case of Manchester United, you know, a lot to admire about how they go about things and all the rest of it. Their commercial revenues are nothing short of incredible. But share price in December 2013, $15.53. Share price this morning, $15.18. So it hasn't moved. 
in seven years. And the S&P 500 over that period has more than doubled. So a company to admire, but not to put your pension fund into. So, yeah. John, let's 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 stop picking on, on Mark's club. I know I know they're a shambles <laughs> and they're a dreadful <laughs> investment. There's no question of that. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's move away from Manchester United. Let's talk about another club very much in the news this week. Barcelona. So, oh, yeah. so, so surely Barcelona, are, are they not just the classic example of what you guys have been talking about for some time? Yes, let's all enjoy the wonderful numbers, the merchandising and how clever their commercial department is and the wonderful football they play. But what about the wage bill? What about the debt sitting on that balance sheet? What, what, what is happening at Barcelona? Well, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the Barcelona issue has a number of parallels that we see in industry, uh, particularly where you have a business or an enterprise that is wholly focused on increasing revenue. And actually, one of, one of the interesting points in the Barcelona accounts is that their narrative in relation to how the objective was to, to reach an annual turnover of a billion euros. The problem is when, you know, when we see passages like that in, in company accounts, and we do see an awful lot of it in, in, U, in UK company accounts, is the first question that comes into our minds is, okay, so what are you doing about your costs? What's your narrative on costs? Where are you focusing on your cost base in order to, to generate value, shareholder value? And the interesting thing about the Barcelona um, accounts over the years is that there has been a decline in their focus on the cost base. So yes, the wage bill has expanded enormously. And when, and when you get a situation like that, and, you're, and you're, run, you're running harder to stand still, then all it takes is a slight knock to that, eco, that financial ecosystem, and the whole thing starts to fall apart very, very quickly. And that's exactly what's happened at Barcelona. So when you look at a, a revenue and, um, let's say, pre-tax profit profile or, or an economic profit profile, it's like the alligator jaws. It's constantly widening. But unfortunately, that lower line, that profit loss line, actually dips below the zero level until it actually flips open and the jaw is broken. And that's where Barcelona is currently. That gap is so wide. Now, we've seen an awful lot of of recent reports in terms of you know close to insolvency close to bankruptcy banks starting to call in loans etc cetera, etc cetera. um it remains to be seen whether that will actually happen you know, the thought crosses my mind certainly that is it one of these instances where it's too big to fail and you know there's a, there's a wonderful paradox here in, in in the sense that you know deloitte's money league list that came out yesterday certain aspects of the media call it a rich list <laughs> well hold on is that really true when you look at barcelona's situation which actually on you know looking at the balance sheet is very very poor indeed i mean there's a great quote from hemingway isn't there you know one of his books i think it's the sun also rises and one of, the, one of the characters in there said, how did you go bust? And the, the, the respondent says, two ways, gradually, and then very suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I, I, but, but on that, and, and that line that you said, John, and do you, I don't know whether you, you, you both can answer this, do you sense that at the very top, there is a feeling within every club that they are too big to actually fail? And And I wonder whether I look at, you know, Berry obviously yeah. went. Rangers did go, but didn't go go. And after five years, are back 
in the Scottish Premiership and could very well win the title this year. Do those biggest clubs, the European elite, think they are too too big to not exist? I think the mindset within owners and, and, and chief execs is, is probably along those lines. What's interesting about football compared to other industries, there's no mergers or acquisitions. You don't get that, that dynamic where companies go bust and new ones come in and replace them necessarily and obviously you know the situation with Barry less so with Bolton and 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 other examples over the last 30 40 years where clubs have found themselves in serious trouble there's an enormous outcry whereas in industry companies yes the major companies do have problems and more recently we've seen it with companies like Thomas Cook and Carillion and a few others but there isn't that cultural impact that you get with football clubs so football um, is in quite a unique position. And therein lies the problem, because if you're running a football club as a business, you don't necessarily get those dynamics and pressures that you would see in a dynamic marketplace. Therefore, um, you know, one of the things that we're interested in is, you know, do, does it need regulating? And we would err on the positive to, to that question we said yes it probably does in terms of clubs like Barcelona Manchester United and, and, and the European elite they are big enough from a revenue perspective to be able to handle major shocks assuming that they were able to run their businesses in a pretty reasonable manner and what we've seen over the years is that is not the case then it winds up to say the fans that are listening to us, Roger, not necessarily from the business perspective, of Ooh. which I would I'd count myself as one. So you mentioned the Manchester United share price not really changing over seven years. And, I, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, I don't really care about the United share price because I'm not Ooh. going to invest in it and I don't want to make money out of my football club. I just want them to win trophies and, and provide me with fun and entertainment. However... Sure. And therefore, I don't care about the business side of it. But then I'm thinking, well, actually, you need the business side to have investment in the game. So are all these businessmen and women around the world thinking, well, we're not going to invest in football anymore? And then does the game shrivel? Well, and, and, yeah, of course. And uh, I'm, I'm a fan like yourself. Kind of thing. And we got into mm. all this because we're fun fundamentally fans yeah. of the game. and We got worried by the financial or the economic picture that we saw. You're absolutely right. You know, why would most fans worry about the share price? I bring the share price up because it's a capital market indicator that actually, if you think that Manchester United is some sort of economic behemoth, well, the markets are taking a different view. That's what, why I brought yeah. that up. The other development, which I think builds on what John was saying earlier, was, you know, we're getting increasingly sophisticated investors coming into the market. You know, San Francisco 49ers yesterday yeah. bought, bought Leeds. So until these, unless these guys start to get their act together, kind of thing, and you've got American pretty hard-nosed investors coming into the Premier League, uh, it's all right saying, well, actually, we're not in business to make an economic surplus. Tell that to them when you've, when, when you've taken their money. <laughs> That's going to be a very interesting conversation when you can't generate an economic return over time. The other thing is, you know, we would emphasize, you know, of course, these clubs have a wider community obligation, uh, for want of a better phrase, kind of thing. but they can only do that over time, sustainably, if they're generating a return. Can't do that, you know. And, yeah. and as you say, if we saw these sort of economic losses in another industry, we'd be going, "Hey, this is this is not good. This is not good." Okay. Now, there may be all sorts of other reasons why football is slightly 
removed from the economic realities. But that's only going to last for so long, I think. So we're back to the Hemingway quote. Yeah. Slowly and suddenly. <laughs> well, okay, chaps. So, we, so we've established that, that even the richest, the so-called richest clubs, aren't that rich. And that, and that football's of questionable investments. John, you have um, already suggested a possible way out of this, more regulation, which again is something we've discussed on this podcast and we've written about at The Athletic. Another possible solution, and it's, I'm building on something that Roger has introduced when he started talking about hard-nosed sports entrepreneurs who expect to make some money coming from the US and buying our clubs. They've got a different model over there. Mark, we talk about it almost every podcast. And they don't. normally normally about this stage yes. in every podcast yeah. as well. Normally about half an in. hour into yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. the final quarter. Oh, yeah, as we enter the, the final way. quarter of the podcast, <laughs> um, we're going to raise uh, the issue of North America's sports model, where they all expect to make some money. So, yeah. European Super League is that where this is heading? Unfortunately, I suspect it is, and I hate the idea. You know, I love the fact that Burnley go to Liverpool and turn them over, kind of thing, and I love that you know Burnley. I'm picking on Burnley, but there are a club that we happen to admire from an economic perspective. But they go to Chelsea and turn them over. I, I, I think we would lose something. But unfortunately, I think when you're getting into these kind of investors who know how to make money out of a sporting franchise, and they will address this cost thing. They will come in and they'll say, I'll tell you what, we'll re- reconstitute the league. We'll, put, we'll find some way to limit these costs for going to players and their agents. We'll find some way to do it, kind of thing. And they'll address that. And I suspect... It'll be a European league. And I hate the idea, but that's where I think it's going. And I know from conversations we've had in the past, Matt, that it's a kind of chestnut that keeps coming over and over and over again. But I think the circumstances are different. The losses are bigger. These investors are coming in. These are smart guys, kind of thing. And, I, you know, I hate the idea, but I still, I, I, inevitably, I think it's coming. In addition to, to what Roger's just said, is that all the ingredients necessary for the development of European Super League are more prevalent than ever. We're aware that it's, it's, it's an idea that's been banded around for decades. But you, know, you consider the situation now, you, you, you have a group of investors that have come into the game over the last five to ten years, uh, predominantly from America, clearly driven by the need and motivation to make a profit, particularly where private equity money is involved. It's you know, you, there's only one motivation there for private equity money, and that is to make more money. Um, when you look at a stru- look at it from a structural perspective, nearly all leagues in Europe now have this cream of two, three, four, five, even six clubs that are very separate and distinct from um, the remainder of those particular divisions or leagues, both in terms of an operational capability, revenue generating capability, and actually arguably in terms of not necessarily a profit generating capability, but a loss making capability. From a technological perspective, um, you know, the TV deal was always you know, the, the big question mark. Well, you know, we would argue that's been superseded now by the American global tech distributors like Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, even Comcast, um, and maybe Disney with their ESPN uh, offering. In terms of players and markets, well, it's clearly an international market. So all the ingredients are there to do it. You know, it could actually happen quite quickly if the will and motivation was there. 
there's nothing to stop it. And we came out with a, a press release last year with our annual report saying that you know, we're closer to European Super League than ever before. And I think you know, what has been interesting is the very recent announcements by UEFA and FIFA trying to head it off at the past. But the problem is, is that, that they're coming up against an increasing wall of investment money. And that investment money is not necessarily interested in the traditions of the game. It's interested in the promotion of the game. Two entirely different things. Just two things on it, on investments then. And, and, and this isn't aimed at any, uh, any club being taken over or receiving investment. But as soon as investment money comes in now, should fans be sceptical rather than welcoming it with open arms? And the second part of that is... When big investment comes into clubs that are not, let alone in the top six of the Premier League, but might even be in the Championship, mm-hmm. what what do you think is the thinking behind investing in Championship clubs at the moment? Then, in terms of your your first question, I think fans should be sceptical because when you get an influx of money, as we are currently seeing, um, the underlying demand of that money is to change the structure, and this is why we're seeing things like Project Big Picture. And you know the, the 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 more recent structural change advocated by the European Super League document that's currently in circulation has been for about I think it's two weeks. Again, what's driving that demand for change is the desire to make or achieve profits. And so you know the traditional structure of, of leagues feeding into a Champions League or a Europa League type system, well, that's going to be questioned straight away you know obviously the americans are coming as into this with the mindset well you know the, the nfl is a license to print money why can't we replicate that structure and so that's the, that's their starting point in terms of your second question in relation to championship i think partly um to invest in a football club and still have that opportunity or that possibility of making it bigger and better is one motivation. And again, with the objective of getting into the Premier League as it currently is. And we've seen many clubs and investors take that route. The unfortunate downside of that is that the Premier League is a very cold, hard place to be, particularly when you've just been promoted. And you know, as we all know, one in three clubs will get will hit relegation in that first season. It's really, really difficult to stay in there. So, you know, you look at Leeds United's performance at the moment, they're doing an exceptionally good job. In terms of uh, a longer-term perspective for a championship owner, I think actually life's going to get very difficult because if you have all of this change happening at the very, very top of the pyramid, then clearly that's going to filter down and impact those investors and those owners in the championship League One, League Two. Um, and what's been interesting for us is to have or to see this concentration of non-UK owners in the Premier League. We're now in a position where six clubs in the Premier League are owned by US interests. We've got another half share in Aston Villa, so that's six and a half. And then you've got another 37% or so in Leeds United, there's another percentage down yeah, in Man City via the Silver Lake investment. So it's not an English Premier League anymore, and it hasn't been for a number of years. It's becoming more Americanized as we move forward. And as we keep saying, we have done for yeah, a number of occasions in our annual reports, this is not going to change, not going to, to, to be a static position. This is going to keep changing until they get their way. I think there's I think there's another there's a wider macro point almost divorced from football here, which is there is a wall of money out there looking for a place to invest. I see this in other work 
in other markets that I'm doing. And, and football is sort of perceived by some as, as you know, quite sexy. And that might be driving a lot of the investment into the championship. Uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Um, as part of home schooling, my daughter's just starting a drum lesson, so <laughs> I think it might be uh, apt to uh, to, uh, to leave it there. Uh, really, really good to talk to you both. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Pleasure. That's it. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Matt. Uh, and I'm back on Monday with David Ornstein. The Athletic.